You're listening to Tales of the Revolution with Jason Vreeke. Storytelling with the purpose of encouraging an encounter with the real Jesus of Nazareth. I want you to see what he's doing in my life and the life of my guest. Would you like to know more? Talesoftherevolution.com is the place to go. And subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play Music, or anywhere you get podcasts. I'm calling this episode Redemption Road. How does God redeem a life? Is there a narrative? My guest storyteller has a narrative to tell you. Joseph A. Ross is a professor of history, and in this episode, he will share some of his personal history. If you have had to deal with grief, sit tight. You're in good company. Here's Joseph to tell you about the redemption that God brought about after suffering a huge loss. I never really understood redemption until my first wife died. As a Christian who grew up in church, I learned about redemption whenever anyone talked about salvation. I knew that before I was saved, my relationship with God was broken. Once I chose to trust in God, though, God would restore the broken relationship and I could be with Him forever. Redeemed, redeemed by the blood of the Lamb, as we used to sing. That's the greatest kind of redemption, the kind that saved me from death and gave me new life. I understood that much. But what about the kind of redemption that restores? I didn't know anything about that. I didn't know I needed to. But God had a different plan. On March 4, 2013, Kristen, my wife of more than seven years, died. She had experienced a brain hemorrhage shortly after giving birth to our second child, and within a matter of days, she was brain dead. I had gone from an incredible high, the birth of my son, to the worst low I had ever known, losing the love of my life. Suddenly I was broken. I had known Kristen for more than 10 years. We had met in college as sophomores, working as tutors at the campus writing center. She was the first girlfriend I'd ever had, and I was her first boyfriend. Neither one of us cared much for dating in high school and had focused more on our studies. We'd set our sights on college and career. So when we met each other and realized how much we had in common, we were in love. We had never known anyone with the same intellectual drive and passion, the same love of knowledge, the same pursuit of truth. It was incredible. We rejoiced because we had finally found another person who appreciated us just the way we are. I dated Kristen for five months before I asked her to marry me. That was all it took for me to know that I did not want to live without her. We didn't rush into marriage though, since we were both committed to our education. We waited until we graduated, nearly two years later, before we got married, but then we started off on a new journey together. We thought we'd grow old together. I never thought I'd be a widower before turning 30. Before turning 30. Before turning 30. If I close my eyes, I can take myself back to that moment in the hospital when Kristen stopped breathing. 
I can hear the nurse yelling her name, Miss Ross, while another asks if she should signal code blue. I remember feeling cold. My blanket had fallen off and hearing a lot of commotion. I woke up quickly from all the noise, but it felt like being in a nightmare as medical personnel from the entire hospital descended on Kristen's room to try to bring her back to life. If I concentrate a little more, I can hear someone telling me that I need to step out of the room so the medical staff can do their jobs. I go and stand in the hallway and try my best to stay out of the way. I can see so many people coming and going. A few are actually running. I look to my right and Kristen's neurologist is scurrying up the corridor with a worried look on her face. I wait outside the room for what seems like an hour before realizing I lack the strength to stand, so I find a chair to sit in near the nurse's station. My body is paralyzed with fear. I hardly know what to think. There's nothing I can do. The neurologist comes over to give me an update. Kristen's heart stopped beating for three minutes. We managed to restart it, but she didn't get any oxygen to her brain during that time, and we don't know the extent of her injuries. She has tubes going down her nose and throat. You need to let your family know. You should not be here alone. I'm in shock. The doctor has just told me that my wife's heart stopped beating, and I don't fully understand what that means for her recovery. I just hope she gets better. I need to believe that. I need to focus on something positive. I need to hope. I call my mom and I'm overwhelmed with emotion. I begin to cry. I can't stop the tears. I don't know what's happening. I feel like my world is falling apart. I don't know how I got here, but I'm scared. I never expected this, never planned for this, never thought this could happen. That Kristen would be near death at age 30? That I would lose her when I was still 29? Husbands don't lose their wives at this age. Husbands usually die first, when they're in their 80s or 90s. A wife doesn't go first, and certainly not when she's young and healthy. Is this really my life? Is this really happening? I feel lost in a sea of fear and confusion. I can't sleep. I exist in a fog of fatigue and blurriness. Is there any up or down left? Days pass by, and I wait on the results from the neurological tests. Kristen has to show signs of brain activity. She has to. She can't be gone, I tell myself. She can't be. She has to live. We just had a baby. I need her help to raise our children. I need her. I speak with the doctor on the morning of March 3rd. The news is bad. The tests reveal no significant brain activity. Kristen will never wake up. She can't breathe on her own. The machines are keeping her alive now. The doctor has to wait 24 hours to confirm the results but I know she's gone. Our daughter is only four and a half years old. Our son only 11 days old when their biological mother dies. 
and I'm a 29-year-old widower and single father. I decided to hold the visitation and funeral back-to-back at the church we'd been part of for eight years. Could have held them on separate days. Most people do. But I was so exhausted that I just wanted to get past everything in one day. The visitation was easier than I thought it would be. All I did was stand at the front of the church, and for two hours, a never-ending stream of people came to offer their condolences. They came from every season in my life. Family members, friends from college, co-workers, guys I played basketball with. It was like seeing every connection I had made throughout my entire life. The funeral is a blur to me. I knew I wanted to give Kristen's eulogy. I wanted everyone there to know what a wonderful wife, mother, and Christian she had been. I wanted to encourage people, to assure them that Kristen loved the Lord, she loved her family, and she loved life. Now she was enjoying the best of times in heaven. The least I could do was share what she meant to me, and how deeply we would all miss her. Afterward, we went to the graveyard. I held my daughter close by, showed her mommy's tomb, and we left to go eat. I have no idea what I ate, or how the food tasted. Losing Kristen was unimaginably painful. It felt like losing part of myself. I didn't know how to live without her. I met her when I was 19, so I was barely an adult when she came into my life. I never had to learn how to be a bachelor. I had never needed to navigate the realities of adulthood by myself. For as long as I could remember, I'd had Kristen by my side. She'd been with me when I started my first job out of college, when I finished my master's degree, when we bought our first car and then our first house, when we welcomed our daughter into the world, when we welcomed our son into the world. Now she was gone. She was gone. I didn't know how to process that in my mind or in my spirit. I had been married to her. We'd had children together. But now I was the only one who was still here. It was tragic. I couldn't stay at home at first. Too many memories. Too much sorrow. I decided instead to stay with my parents Both of my brothers were in town, too, a rare treat, so it was nice to be around so many familiar faces, the very same individuals who walked alongside me throughout my life. After a few days, though, everyone had to get back to their homes, their jobs, their schools, their routines. As much as I didn't want to go back home, I knew I had to. The first three months were horrible. I cried every day usually at night, big crocodile tears, the kind that leave a puddle on the ground. I'd cry before bed, fall asleep, but not really get any rest, and then get my kids ready for preschool and daycare the next morning. It was a constant cycle, and I dreaded it. After three months, I didn't cry every day, but my emotions swung on a pendulum. One minute, I'd feel fine. The next... I'd want to crawl into a hole and die. I hated it. I had never been an emotional person. In fact, 
people often described me as stoic. I tend to be more intellectual and cerebral, emotionally stable and in control of my feelings. But all that went out the window as I struggled to come to grips with my reality. I used to be a husband. I used to have a wife. I used to feel normal. Now I was a widower. Now I was a single father. Now I felt incomplete. I found myself asking, is this really my life? Is this who I am? I began to struggle with a lot of anger toward God. I didn't understand why God allowed this to happen. It shouldn't be this way, I thought. This can't be the plan, I declared. But this was my new normal, and I had to get used to it. Before long, a year had passed since Kristen's death, and I was still struggling as a widower and single father. Some things, like taking care of the kids, had gotten a little easier. I wasn't as overwhelmed as I had been at first, but I still didn't enjoy being alone. I missed Kristen. I missed her in every way, physically and emotionally. I wanted her back, but I wasn't in shock anymore so I knew she'd never come back. I knew I just had to press on and take life one day at a time. I decided to stop wearing my wedding ring. The marriage was over, and I no longer felt like I needed to wear a symbol of our vows to one another. But I still didn't feel like dating again. I wanted to honor Kristen's memory and stay loyal to her. So I wore our rings around my neck it was another way for me to grieve. I wanted people to see that I still loved her, even if I wasn't wearing the ring she put on my finger. It was my way of saying, I used to be married, and my heart still longs for this person. At that point, I really thought I'd be alone for the rest of my life. In my heart, I just couldn't see myself ever being comfortable with another woman. I couldn't see myself ever wanting someone else because no matter how wonderful she might be, she would never be Kristen. I did start dating again, but I wasn't really ready for a serious relationship. I think I just wanted to see if I could be with another woman and not feel guilty. I quickly realized that I could, so that was a relief. It gave me hope that maybe, just maybe, I might one day, years down the road, find the right person. But even though I was dating again, I still hadn't healed to the point where I wanted to commit myself fully to another person. Too many other things were vying for my attention, and I couldn't see how I would ever be able to make room for a full-time relationship. Plus, I was a package deal. Whoever I wanted to be with had to be right both for me and my children. Otherwise, the relationship would never work. And I began to wonder if I'd be able to find someone who would eagerly accept two small children as her own. What I didn't realize was that God was already moving behind the scenes, lining up a series of events so that I would meet and fall in love with the woman I'm now married to. It started innocently enough, only a couple of months after Kristen died, I had to register my daughter for kindergarten, so I visited the school one summer afternoon. I met the principal, 
and we chatted for a few minutes, long enough for me to share that my daughter did not have a mother, and that was about it. The principal had heard about my situation and suggested I inform my daughter's teacher. And then we left, and I didn't give the conversation a second thought. I was too consumed with the realization that my five-year-old daughter would be starting elementary school in a few short months. I wished Kristen were still here to see that. What I did not find out until years later was that the principal had a staff meeting soon after our encounter, went to one of her teachers, a lovely woman named Lauren who taught third grade, and told her that she had met someone whom she thought would be a good match for her. Lauren had heard about me too, but since Kristen had passed away so recently, she did not think the time was right to ask me out. She went back to her life, but she kept me on her radar for the next two years. I could barely keep up with all the demands on my time. Did I mention that I had been working on my PhD in history when Kristen died and I was still attending night classes throughout the week? I was constantly bouncing from work to my daughter's school to my son's daycare to church to doctor's appointments to the grocery store. I couldn't focus on any one thing. I could only give minimal effort to everything, which drove me crazy being a perfectionist and all. And to top it all off, I had decided to give dating a try. It was too much. And I remember telling God that if he wanted me to be with someone else, he would have to send her into my life and work out all the details. I couldn't do it. I wouldn't. Then one day, out of the blue, one of the teachers at my daughter's school contacted me to ask if I would be interested in dating her friend, Lauren. She told me Lauren was a single Christian looking for the right guy and that maybe the two of us would be a good fit. She asked if she could give me Lauren's contact information. I said, sure, why not, you know? I wasn't going to get my hopes up. If it worked out, great. If not, no big deal. Then I saw Lauren's picture and made a startling discovery. I had already met her at an Easter egg hunt a few weeks before. She was talking to my daughter, whom she recognized from school, and helped her find me while I was walking around with my son. I remember thinking, this can't be a coincidence. So Lauren and I got in touch and exchanged a lot of messages before we had our first official date. I never forget how warm and loving she seemed even in her text messages. She sent me one on Mother's Day to let me know that she'd been praying for me and the kids, which really touched me. When we finally went out, everything just clicked. Conversation came naturally between us. I could tell how much she loved God and enjoyed teaching. She really seemed like a perfect fit early on. But I had not formally introduced her to my children, and I wanted to see how she and the kids would get along. So I waited nearly three months after our first date to let her meet both kids. That was when I knew she was the one. The kids loved her, and she loved them. I was more than satisfied. I was overjoyed. Every one of my family and friends loved Lauren, too. They could tell that she was a wonderful person, genuine and kind, warm and compassionate. My parents let me know how pleased they were with her and how well she fit in with the whole family. 
I was glad that the people I loved and respected had such a favorable impression of her. But I was even more glad that God had given me the most amazing sense of peace in my spirit. Had God really decided to bless me with this wonderful woman? Was this my reward after years of struggle, tears, and pain? I started to think so. I didn't deserve Lauren, but I knew I'd be an idiot to live without her. We dated for about seven months, and then on New Year's Eve 2015, I asked her to marry me. We were engaged for about six months after that, and then we exchanged our wedding vows in June 2016. We even got married in the same church from the same platform where I gave Kristen's eulogy three years before. Lauren and I have enjoyed numerous blessings ever since. We've shared a few adventures from the island of Aruba to New York City, Niagara Falls, and Washington, D.C., and we cherish each other from the depths of our souls. We both agree that the word that best describes our lives now is redemption. God redeemed our brokenness and made us new. I know that for me personally, He's given me a second chance at love, and I won't take it for granted. Lauren is everything I want in a spouse. She loves and accepts me for who I am. She treats the kids as her own. She wants the kids to always remember Kristen, and she respects the relationship that we once shared. She works hard to be a fantastic mother, and she is such a thoughtful and caring wife. I could not have asked for anyone better. That part of my spirit that had been cold and empty has now been restored. I wouldn't choose to go through this kind of tragic journey again, and I wouldn't wish it on my worst enemy. But now that I'm on the other side, I can see how God began to mold me like clay into something better, stronger in my faith, and more secure in my foundation. Redemption is the key lesson God has been teaching me these past four years. He redeemed my life 20 years ago when I put my trust in Jesus, and He restored my life when He sent Lauren to be my wife and companion. All I had to do was submit to His will and trust that His ways are better than my ways. And now nothing can break the bond we share. Redeemed, redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. A big thanks to Joseph A. Ross. Read his blog and learn more about him at josephaross.org. Redemption Road continues on Tales of the Revolution with Jason Vreeke. So let's talk about redemption. What does it mean? Why do we need redemption? And how does it happen? The word redemption, of course, comes from the word redeem, which means to buy back or repurchase. Back in the day, in the Garden of Eden, life was grand. Perfect weather, friendly animals, plenty of fresh and delicious fruit to eat, except for one tree. God warned Adam and Eve not to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For in the day you eat of it, he said, you will surely die. Let's consider this for a moment. We often think of Adam and Eve as a couple of half-witted nudists who listened to a talking snake 
this notion actually betrays the message that is truly being conveyed. Adam and Eve, were they living today, would be the smartest, strongest, and most beautiful people on the face of the earth. They are the archetypes. Not only that, they would be the most spiritual. They actually walked with God in the garden. They're not the kind of people who would be easily tricked by a python on a tree limb. And as long as we're getting a bit technical, I'd just like to remind you that in Hebrew, the word for serpent used in this text is Nachash, which actually gives the idea of a shining one, perhaps a being of light. And as with our high school math classes, the answers are in the back of the book. This Nachash is identified in the book of Revelation as Satan himself, who is identified in another place as an angel of light. So Eve was not talking to a snake, but an angel, possibly disguised in some kind of serpentine appearance, but an angel nonetheless. The anointed cherub, Lucifer, which of course means light bearer. We're told that Eve was deceived and ate the fruit from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. We often jump to the conclusion that Adam and Eve, prior to eating this fruit, did not have the knowledge of good and evil. But actually, this is not true. This tree bore fruit that basically changed Adam and Eve into beings who not only knew good and evil, but they were changed into those who had the desire to define good and evil. So Eve ate the fruit, and she gave it to Adam, and he ate it as well. Whoa, whoa, wait a minute. I thought they were supposed to die when they ate the fruit. They did. They died spiritually. They saw their nakedness. Now, I have no way of proving this, and I don't know if it's true because I wasn't there, but some conjecture that Adam and Eve were surrounded in light, and then when they ate the fruit, the light went away, thus revealing their nakedness. And they became ashamed and sought to clothe themselves. Again, I don't know if it's true, but it's an interesting thought. Many translations of the Bible say the serpent, or the shining one, was more cunning than any of the other creations in the garden. But in this instance, I like how the King James puts it. It says that the serpent was more subtle than any other creation in the garden. He was. Don't you agree? Here he was trying to tell Eve that if she would eat this fruit, she would be like God. Too bad she didn't do her homework because she was already like God, created in his image. Lucifer was not created in God's image. Subtle. And he's still subtle today. So you and I must turn it over and be wise as serpents. So here, our great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great and on and on grandparents, Adam and Eve, were in the garden having eaten the forbidden fruit, and they were dead. Fellowship was broken and they were separated from God. But what did God do? He sought them out. He called for Adam. Adam was hiding. He was afraid. But God is a redeemer. Adam and Eve may have sold their souls 
to this serpent, this shining one. But God showed up to buy them back, to redeem them. Adam and Eve tried to cover their nakedness by the works of their hands with fig leaves, but it wasn't cutting it. So God did something to clothe them, to restore them back into right standing with him. He had to kill a couple of animals and clothe Adam and Eve in animal skins, leather clothes. The example is made. Sin takes place, and only by the shedding of innocent blood could the sinners be redeemed. Many millennia later, innocent blood would again be shed, not just for a couple of people, but for all people, if only they would believe. I hope you do believe in the sacrifice Jesus made on the cross, and that on the third day, according to the scriptures, he rose again proving his power over sin and over death. And because he lives, we also shall live. It's about that time, the end of the show. But don't worry. Redeem the time until the next episode and catch up on past ones at talesoftherevolution.com. There you'll find all episodes available for download. And don't forget to click subscribe to the podcast. This will reveal links so you can subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, or Google Play Music. And you can even subscribe anywhere you find podcasts. And while you're at talesoftherevolution.com, subscribe to email updates and you'll get access to downloads of bonus content not available anywhere else. Again, talesoftherevolution.com. And don't forget social media, facebook.com slash talesoftherevolution and on Twitter, at Jason Vreeke. That's V as in victory, R-E-E-K-E. And Jason has just spelled the standard way. Thank you for listening to Tales of the Revolution with Jason Vreeke. This episode was entitled Redemption Road. Until next time, help others to get on the road and tell them about Jesus as you live the revolution. <laughs>